Right. How's everybody doing? Good. Hey, let's turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 10. We're going to go through nine verses tonight. We're going to be in Hebrews 2. We're going to go 10 through 18. So uh, this is our fourth week in the book of Hebrews. I don't know if you guys have have felt that Hebrews is a very different book than Genesis <laughs> yet. Uh, you know, it's kind of like a... You know, those nights if you ever sat down to watch something really heady, like a documentary or something like that, and you turn it on, about two minutes in, you go, well, I'm not ready for this. You know, like, I, I tell you, for myself, I personally can't come in unprepared. Uh, and just a, just a little pro tip, you know, when we're studying through Hebrews, it's steak, it's not pudding. You know, like, it's, it's thick, it requires, both are good, but... It, it requires a lot of chewing, uh, savoring, like it takes some time. So, I mean, the pro tip is, man, if you can pre-read a little bit the passage that you're going to be in, if you can think on it before you come in, um, and you'll really get a lot more out of it because these verses are thick. We're going to go through nine verses tonight, and, man, I spent hours and hours and hours and hours studying this, and I feel like I'm just barely scratching the surface. So hopefully this is like a movie trailer that you guys will go back and read on your own this week. And really, man, the Lord will just blow your mind. So let's go to Hebrews uh, chapter two, starting in verse 10. And we got to, especially in this first verse, we got to do some mining, some digging, because he's going to bring out four key words that I think are the key to understanding the whole passage, four big words in this. So in verse 10, it says this, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. All right, I think this is the thesis statement that's gonna help explain the rest of the verses. So, it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Who's that? Yeah, you could say Jesus, you're right, because John 1, 3 says all things were made through Jesus and without him was not anything made that was made. But the context here, I think it's talking about God the Father, where he says it's fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, who's that? That's us. Should make the founder of their salvation, who's that? That's Jesus, perfect through suffering. So I think for us to understand this verse, we got to get four key words down. Like we got we to understand that and that's going to unlock the whole passage. The, the four words are fitting. What does it mean when it says it was fitting that God would do this? The second word is founder, the founder of our salvation. What does that mean? The third word is perfect. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? And suffering, what does it mean that he was made perfect by suffering? All right, so let's go to the first word fitting it was fitting or it was right or it was appropriate to bring many sons to glory that God should make the founder of their, their salvation Jesus perfect through suffering this is what it was fitting to do now this is something only God gets to define right you, uh, you hear a lot of times where folks are like man you know God shouldn't do this or that you know like things like how can God you sin for a finite amount of time, God shouldn't punish you for a, an infinite amount of time. God shouldn't do that. You know, you hear statements like that. God shouldn't do this or God shouldn't do that. I, I read an article today that says God shouldn't expect us to love or worship him and he shouldn't care if we don't. And I think, man, anytime we say God should or God shouldn't, we're out of our depth. 
But it would be like my dog saying to me, you know, you should be digging more holes in this yard. And I'm like, yeah, according to your economy, yes, I totally should be done. But we're on different planes here. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can't tell me what in your world, yes, that's what I should do. But I'm not in your world. You know what I'm saying? Like, we can't dictate to God what is fitting. But the crazy thing about this verse is is that he's going to give us a window into his own thoughts. He's going to say, you know, if you've ever wondered, why did Jesus have to suffer? He's fixing to tell us. Oh, here's why it's fitting. He's going to give you nine verses on that. Here's why it makes sense for Jesus. Here's, let me let you into my mind, God says. You know, because we know in 2 Corinthians 5, it says that God's mission, his plan was in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And now it's going to tell us how the means by which it was fitting to do so was suffering. He's going to explain. That's the first word, fitting. The second word that's important to understand is founder of their salvation. That's talking about Jesus. That word is archegon in Greek. All right, it's going to get nerdy for a little bit, but then we're going to resurface, all right? It's archegon in Greek, which, uh, which means archetype. It's the same word used for prince or captain, which is a cool thought, to make the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering. It's, a, uh, it's in other Greek literature, it's used to describe Hercules as the champion. So the champion of our salvation, uh, it's the originator, the pioneer, the trailblazer, the captain. So it's a pretty cool thought that is saying that it was fitting for God to make the captain or the trailblazer of our, our salvation perfect through suffering. I mean, you can pick your illustration here. I thought about these. He's the lead climber. The one that goes up the rock first, setting the gear and preparing the way for those climbing behind, and he keeps us from falling. He's the captain. He's the first one into battle with all of us following behind, taking courage from his attack. He's the pioneer. He ventures first into the unknown, settling a land so that we can follow and live. He's the champion, not just the first, but the best, leading many sons to glory. He's the founder of our salvation. Third word, y'all hanging with me? All right, third word is perfect. What does it mean when he says it was fitting, right, appropriate, that he should make the captain, the trailblazer of our our salvation, perfect? Was there a time where Jesus wasn't perfect? Okay, think about it, because that's what it seems like it's saying. But if you look at the word for perfect, it's the same one he used on the cross when he said it is finished, or it is perfect, or it is completed. That same word there, it's You could say, another way to say it is, the captain was completed by his suffering. Uh, A a verse that helps a lot, helped me understand it, was Hebrews 5. We'll have it on the board. It's Hebrews 5, 8 through 9. Here's what it says. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This verse says that Jesus learned obedience. Now, he didn't learn obedience in the sense that he was once disobedient and then he suffered for a while and now he's made obedient or perfect. What I think what it's saying is he's always been perfect. He's always been obedient, but that obedience was without temptation. You know what I'm saying? Jesus is in heaven. He is perfect, but he was made complete when he's tempted, when he suffers, suffering and temptation proved his obedience. It completed it. You see, that's where we fall. When we suffer, we sin. When we are tempted, we cave in. But Christ did not. He's the captain.
captain and he succeeds where we failed. He complete, he's made complete in one sense by his suffering. What suffering? That's the fourth word, suffering. We can talk about a lot of ways that Jesus suffered. I mean, just lowering himself from being God to being man, that's crazy. Just to be in the level of being a human that God would experience physical pain and sleepless nights and body aches and coughs and sickness and rashes and 10,000 indignities of just being a human. But then beyond that, he's tempted so that we can have victory in temptation. He's, he's cursed so that we can be out from under the curse. He's bound so that we can be free. It is fitting, God declares, that the captain, the pioneer, be made complete through suffering so that we can be complete in him. Because what he's buying, he's bringing many sons and daughters to glory. He's buying his family, sons and daughters, not strangers. The pioneer is buying the way for his family. Now, the rest of these verses are gonna explain it. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies. All right, let me go back to read that first verse. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are are sanctified all have one source. In the Greek, it's really he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. And it really, since he's talking about bringing sons to glory, it's really talking about this family bond. We have this same source. We're all the same family if we're in Christ. Which, if he didn't introduce that concept to us, it would be wild to claim that we're of God's family. You think about it. Look at the, look at the next part of that verse. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. That's one of the wildest verses in the scripture. Think about it. He's not ashamed. That that is blasphemy if he didn't say it. But it's blessing because he did. Because don't forget who's talking here. Hebrews 1 has told us who Jesus is. It says, his son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, our brother. That's, that's our sibling. That is wild. And, I mean, it's, it's, and, and I think it's another reason why the God's given uh, for it, it being fitting for Christ to suffer. So that to us, Jesus could be a good brother. He enters into our condition. He goes where we go. He feels what we feel. He suffers what we suffer. We belong to the family, yes, because of Christ's suffering, but there's also unity in the family because Christ suffered. There's nothing you can go through that you're like, God, you don't understand. You've never been through that. He suffered. That's why it's fitting for him to suffer. All right. The next couple of verses. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God had given me. What is that? I was reading through this and I was like, I, I don't get it. Uh, but it's, it's Old Testament quotes. And I'm going to go through this quick, and I beg you, later on this week, really go through and study 12 and 13, 
because there's so much good in there. But basically, it's three different quotes from the Old Testament. The first one is from Psalm 22. Y'all know the psalm. The same psalm uh, is talking about Jesus the whole time, right? Psalm 22 is the same psalm that says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the same psalm that says, they divide my garments. Uh, they cast lots for my clothing. Same psalm that says, they have pierced my hands and feet. It's describing Jesus on the cross. And then it goes on and it describes Jesus rising and entering into glory. And verse 22 of Psalm 22 says, when Jesus has risen again, it says, I will tell of your name, God, to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. It's such a cool verse because he's saying, in our, in our verse here, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, this, this family, God himself. That's why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. In fact, way back in the Old Testament, he was proclaiming that he would come and, and proclaim God's name to all of his brothers. He's not ashamed because his suffering bought our adoption. That's why we belong. The second quote where he says, verse 13, again, I'll put my trust in him. That one's really obscure. That one's from Isaiah 8, verse 17. I will put my trust in him. Now, this is a passage that does speak about the Messiah, Isaiah 8. But specifically here, all right, step out of this Hebrews. We're going into the Old Testament. Isaiah is the prophet, right? He's given a message. And his message is not being received. The message is, man, God's going to judge you guys. But there's going to be a remnant that survives. There's going to be salvation down the road. And nobody believes this message. And so Isaiah's like, you know what? I'm going to write it down. And he writes it down in a book, and he's like, I'm going to seal this up. And when it happens, y'all come read my book. Y'all can see that God is faithful and that whatever God says happens. So he seals it up, and he reads it and in this book saying, I will put my trust in him that he's going to make this come to pass. All right? <clears throat> in the same way, Jesus' message was mocked and hidden from God's people. But the message of salvation is revealed, and Jesus trusted through that suffering. Now, the last quote here. I will put my trust in him. The last one is, behold, I and the children God has given me. <clears throat> that quote's actually from Isaiah 8 as well. It's right after 8.17. It's 8.18. Isaiah, he writes this message down in his book saying, hey, when this happens, y'all gonna know that God is true. And he says, behold, Isaiah says, I and the children who God has given me, we are signs in Israel from the Lord who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah's continuing his thought. He's saying, not only will you have this message, you'll have me and my kids. You see, Isaiah's name himself, it means Yahweh is salvation. And he named his kids two really weird names. One of them's name is Meher Shalel Hashbaz, which... <laughs> Rulos. Think about it, think about it. Um, but that name means the spoil speeds the prey haste. Basically, judgment is coming. Well, his other kid... His name is Sheir Jashub. Not as good, still cool. Um, but his name means a remnant will return. So even when they walk down the streets and all these guys who didn't believe their message, when they say their names, hey, there goes old God judgment's coming. Hey, where's his brother? The remnant's happening. Oh, he's with his dad, Yahweh is salvation. <gasps> oh my gosh. Like he's walking, they are the message. You see what Jesus is saying? It's, it's crazy. We today, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. We're the message. We're the proof. We are the signs that God has come to save. We are signs of God's faithfulness, brothers and sisters of Jesus. He's not ashamed to call. We're on display. That is 
Man, that's huge. These Old Testament quotes. Verse 14. Now this is a good verse. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That is a crazy verse. And you ever think about Jesus walked around earth for over 30 years? Why? Because a lot of times when we think of Jesus just putting in a cheat code or whatever, but he didn't suffer. I mean, Jesus, he got tired. His blood sugar ran low. He's, he stubbed his toe. He sweated. He slept. He slept badly. He ate. He partook of the same fleshly things that we did, but then he went all the way, and he died fully identifying with humanity. That was the point of his life was his death, but his death wasn't like ours because he was the captain. This was the suffering and death that led the way. Now, here's what's interesting. Because when I first started reading this verse, I really thought it was centered around primarily the resurrection, and that's in there, that's implied. But he doesn't say that Jesus defeated the devil through the resurrection. He specifically says that through death, he destroys, not death, through death, he destroys the devil. How's that happen? Through Jesus' death, he destroys, and that word for destroy means render ineffective or nullify the devil. All right. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. How does Satan have the power over death? All right. I'm asking you. Does Satan have the power of death as in he decides who lives and dies, yes or no? No. So how in the world does he have the power of death? I mean, God alone, you know, in Deuteronomy 32 and 1 Samuel 2, God says, I kill, I make alive. So what power does the devil have of death? Like the power of death. What power of death does Satan have? I want to highlight two, and there's probably more, but I want to highlight two things, all right? And the first one's kind of hard to understand, and it, I pray you'll follow, all right? So here's the first. How does Satan have the power of death if he can't decide who lives and who dies? So Satan was the one to bring the downfall of the first humans, right? And the curse of death came afterwards uh, because of their law-breaking. That was the deal. He tempted these guys. That's, these are the tools in his toolbox. He's able to tempt and then he's able to accuse, and it's really dirty because he attempts us to sin. Hey, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. And as soon as we give in, the dirty part is he's like, man, you're trash. You're worthless because you did exactly what I wanted you to do. And it's uh, such a dirty bait and switch. I mean, he's seeking someone to devour, but how does he accuse us? When he accuses you, he accuses you with the law. Think about it. You sinner. You broke the law. You're dirty. You're doomed. God won't love you. You broke the law. You're dead in your sins. You, you're going to die. And one power of death that Satan has is the power to remind us of our law breaking and the punishment that we get for that death. Death's coming. Death's coming. It's what you deserve. And here's the beauty of it. How did... How did Jesus' death destroy Satan who has the power of death? 1 Corinthians 15. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Think about that for a second. 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the sting of sin is death. I'm sorry, the sting of death is sin. Well, he pays for our sins, so there's no more sting for us. The power of sin is the law. Well, he fulfills the law. So there's no more power in sin and death for us. So see, when Satan brings up the law, there's no more power of death there. Through his death in satisfying the law and paying for our sins, through his death, he destroyed the power to accuse. You lawbreaker, yep. Jesus paid for that. You sinner, yep. Jesus took that sin. He took that power away from him. It's crazy. Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's what he wants to remind you of. This whole record of debt. You owe, you owe, you owe. Look at this. This Jesus set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He shames Satan by his death. I mean, he disarms Satan, then destroys him, and then shames him in his death. First John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That mission is accomplished. Luke 11 but if it is by the finger of God, Jesus says, this is back when people are saying, me casting out demons by a demon. Jesus says, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But if a stronger than him attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and he divides the spoil. You see what I'm saying? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. The armor of Satan is taken away when the champion, the archetype, Jesus, overpowers, attacks, and overcomes Satan by his death. There is no more power in accusation. That's paid for. Now, we know that Jesus doesn't stay dead. You know, Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, just like Jesus was in the grave for three days, and the whale spit Jonah out, but Jesus burst out of the grave because it couldn't hold him. Death could not hold him. And that's why he says in Revelation 1 at the end of the book, right? Fear not. Fear not. Don't be scared because I'm the first and the last, Jesus said. I'm the living one. See, I died and I'm alive forever and I have the keys of death and hell. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Because I think that's the other way Satan has a power over death, the power of death. Uh, Verse 15, go back to verse 14. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, verse 15, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. All right, a second way. I think that he destroyed the devil and the power of death. We gotta think about this birth, the fear of death that we're subject to lifelong slavery. Does death have power by itself? Kinda, yeah, it's, it's the end of life, but death itself is just a switch track. It's just a change. Death itself holds no slavery, right? 
But the real power of death is the fear of death. For us right now, it's a switch track. But for right now, I mean, one power I think that Satan wields is he can't control the moment of death, but he can control this moment and the next one and the next one. He can wield and remind you about the fear of death. Everybody fears death naturally. I think for some people, they fear the lead up. They fear aging. Uncertainty about how death's gonna happen. There's a, a fear of a slow decline, a fear of a mental instability, a fear of physical hardship, hardship. Will there be pain at the end? Will there be regrets at the end? There's this fear of dying. Other, other people fear the state of being dead. What's gonna happen next? Because I'm gonna lose everything I know. It's a loss of all comfort, all familiarity, everything lovely that I know. And some non-Christians who know the Bible, you know, they, they fear everlasting punishment, whatever the fear is. <clears throat> Man, there's so many people that are enslaved to the fear of death. It's where our minds go when we're quiet sometimes. It's what we dream about. It whispers on a sunny day, but it shouts in the doctor's office. Fear of death is so terrifying to many, but not to the brothers and sisters of Christ. You think about, we've been delivered from this gripping, everyday slavery of fearing death because Jesus has totally, he's transformed the meaning of death. He went first. He's the pioneer. So for us, death is not a destination, it's a doorway. It's not judgment, it's blessing. It's not death, it's true life. I, I got the privilege of preaching my grandmama's funeral. Uh, it was about two or three years ago, I guess. She's a strong believer, quiet woman, she's wonderful. And one of the things I got to do is I got to remind everybody that was in attendance, you know, funerals, they're not for the dead, they're for the living. And I, I got to remind them, I was like, you know, grandmama, she's more alive today than she's ever been. And in fact, she's more alive than any person in this room right now. And that's true of this room too. She is more alive than any of us have ever been. It's wild. 1 Thessalonians 4. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you might not grieve as others do who don't have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He will bring with him, he will lead, he will captain, he will pioneer, and we will follow. We follow our captain who has blazed the way through death. So our death becomes like his death, our resurrection becomes like his. We will be like him. Here's what I'm saying. Let the devil bring up death. Do it. Death, we're not enslaved to the fear of death. He's... He thinks he's bringing up our greatest fear. He's bringing up our greatest hope. Death? You've been beaten by death, Satan. You've been shamed by death, Satan. You've been disarmed and shamed. Let, yeah, let's talk about death. We don't hide from death because our pioneer has already broken through. We rise and follow. Yes, death is unknown, but he is not. He goes before us and we fix our eyes on him. See, Satan needs our fear and our sin to render us ineffective. But death has lost its sting and lost its fear and armed with that mindset. We follow brother Jesus through the struggle, through the temptation, through the death, all the way to glory. First Thessalonians 5, 
God has not destined us, destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just like you're doing. That's what we're doing tonight. That's the goal of this, that we'd see death as a doorway, not a destination, that we'd take hope. And the last couple of verses bring us a lot of hope. Verse 16, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You know, the first couple chapters have been saying, Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than the angels. And this is saying, but then he lowered himself past them and came down because it's the offspring of Abraham that he helps. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service uh, of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. All right. So Hebrews, if you've read it before, Hebrews talks about the high priest a ton. I think there's 26 verses that go into Jesus as the high priest. So I'm not going to go into it very much. I'm just going to say this. There's a huge twist in Jesus' story. Not only did he become a human, but he, the high priest, became the sacrifice. That is the huge twist in the story. He's human in every way to become the high priest, but he's perfect in every way to be the sacrifice. It is a beautiful, death-defeating, devil-destroying reality. It's the best surprise ending in history. His death looked like defeat, but when he raised in victory, it was victory for all his brothers and sisters. Last verse, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, He's able to help those who are being tempted. There's a, man, there's so much hope in these verses tonight, but that, that one by itself, because he himself suffered when tempted, he's able to help those, us, who are being tempted. What does it mean that Jesus suffered when, he, when he's tempted? Did Jesus actually suffer when he's tempted? Because a lot of us think about, yeah, Jesus, you know, he's going along, but he's God, you know, so he sees a pretty girl and it's like, you know, like, it doesn't even phase him, you know? Like, he gets tired, and it's, he's, it's almost like he's got the God cheat code on. That's not what it's saying here. While I do think there were some temptations he was able to brush off, just like there's some that you're able to brush off, I think there were some very real temptations that caused him suffering. Because you think about who he's tempted by. Sometimes he's tempted by his enemies. You got the high priest. You got the thief on the cross that's saying, if you're the son of God, come down and save yourself and save us. Jesus is tempted to stop the mission. I mean, Satan himself tempted Jesus to shortcut the mission for fame. He's not just tempted by his enemies. He's tempted by his friends. Jesus goes to his home county to Capernaum, and he's saying, I have the authority to forgive sins. And in Mark 3, his family go out to grab him, saying, you, you, are, you are out of your mind. Read that part in Mark 3. It's crazy. They go out and try to seize him to say, you're, you're talking crazy, you're out of your mind, stop with the preaching. Peter rebuked Jesus when Jesus said, I'm gonna die and be raised again. He says, this will never happen to you, Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because he recognized the tempter and the message, stop the plan of salvation. Man, the closeness of these relationships brought a lot of suffering and temptation. He was tempted by his enemies. He was tempted by his friends. He was tempted by Satan himself. And I think that Jesus was tempted by 100,000 temptations that weren't written down. 
He was tempted to lust, to pride, to quit, to shortcut, to stop. He sweated that night in the garden. He sweated saying, if it's your will, let this cup pass. But then he said, but not my will, but yours be done. See, the real suffering in Jesus' temptation is that he never gave in to it. Think about that. When we're tempted, it's hard until you give in, and then it's easy. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Ah, oh, I did it. Relief. The real difficulty in Jesus' temptation is that he never gave in to it. That's struggling in temptation. I want to use this illustration that I've used before. Brody's used a version of it before. It helps me to understand it a lot about a lot of people say, well, Jesus doesn't understand what I'm going through because he doesn't feel the weight of sin like I do. Man, he's, I, I'm screwing up all the time. He does not understand that. The illustration is I used to teach swift water rescue classes uh, for Snowbird. They were awesome. And so what we do, one drill was, uh, so you got the Nantahala River down here, right? We'd pick a spot where it's about this deep, deep enough to wear a life jacket afloat, all right? And so the current would be coming down, just blowing. Now, let's say it's coming from the back of the room to the front of the room. All right, so the drill was I'd stretch a rope across, a tree that way, a tree that way, stretch a rope across, and I'd tell the students, you got to go hand over hand just like this and make it all the way across the river. Sounds great, but I'd pick a spot that couldn't do it, right? So I, they were destined to fail, and it was great because we're teaching them how strong the current was. All right, so if you've got the river, it's going straight from the back to the front. Where's the strongest part in the current? In the middle. So... You have a student, student one. He gets out there on the rope, and at the side, it's easy because it's not that deep, and it's not that fast, and you're going, man, this is a cake. This is easy. And you'd watch him all of a sudden, that current would go, and that you'd see him kind of, all right, all right. You know, kind of, I'm getting ready, I'm getting ready. And they'd start going, and it, I mean, as soon as their hands start shaking, you count to three, and they're done. You know, and especially as soon as their hands go from here to, to here, they're done, done. So that water's just, and they're trying to make it out, and eventually they just, they let go, and they float down the river, go over to the side. Well, the next guy comes out, and he makes it right up to where the other guy was was going. That current's getting stronger, and he makes it a step further than the last guy. And he makes it further and further, and the hardest part of the current's right here, and he makes it almost to the hardest part, and it's pushing against him so hard, and the, he pops and he goes down the river. Third guy. Makes it to the point of the first one. He's, water's pushing on his chest. Gets all the way out to where the second guy made it. He's in the strongest part of the current. And he takes one step further and he's in the full blast of it. And then he takes one step further and it eases up a little bit. And eases up a little bit. And eases it up a little bit. And eases up and he made it across. Which one of the three felt the full weight of the river? The third one. Because guy number two never knew what it would have been like another step further. You see what I'm saying? Jesus is the only one that felt the full weight of sin because he never gave in. We don't know what it would have been like had we resisted for another minute. He led the way. He suffered when tempted so he can help you when you're tempted as such. Man, it's so good. It's so much comfort. I'll read the last couple quotes. Those who've never grieved can't fully identify with the grieving. Those who've never felt need can't fully identify with those who have need. Alexander McLaren says this, comfort drops but coldly from lips that have never uttered a sigh or a groan. 
for our poor human hearts. It is not enough to have a merciful God far off in the heavens. We need a Christ who can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities ere we can come boldly to the throne of grace, assured of their finding grace in time of need. Spurgeon says this, it's all black about me and the path is miry and I sink into it. I can find no standing, but I plunge onward, desperately set on reaching my journey's end. It frets me that I'm alone, but I hear a voice. I can see nothing, but I hear a voice which says, yea, though I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. And I cry out, who goes there? And an answer comes back to me. I, the faithful and true witness, the alpha and the omega, the sufferer who was despised and rejected of men, I lead the way. And at once I feel that it is light about me and that there's rock beneath my feet. For if Christ my Lord had been there, then the way must be safe and must conduct to the desired end. The very fact that he has suffered then consoles his people. That's good. This is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. This is the tempted Christ, the hungry Christ, the victorious Christ without sin, the serpent crusher, the fear destroyer. This is our captain who leads the way through suffering through temptation, through death to glory, and we follow. So if you're tempted today to fall back in old sins, tempted to think that Christ can't help you, tempted to trust money instead of Jesus, man, look to him. He's able to help. I don't know what all that means. It's very deep, but if we, if we ask him, he'll help. It's fitting, says God, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. It's fitting that he should make Jesus the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. It's fitting that through Jesus' suffering, God adopts us as brothers and sisters of Jesus. It's fitting that Jesus destroys the devil through his death. It's fitting that Jesus sets free those enslaved to fear. It's fitting that Jesus was humbled as a man to take on the role of the high priest and was offered as the sacrifice. It's fitting that Jesus suffered through temptation without sin. And it's fitting, God says, that Jesus can now help us in our suffering. It's the plan laid out from before time because he loves us. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for going before us. Thank you for leading the way. Thank you for suffering uh, so that we never feel like you haven't been there, like you don't understand, like you're far off. God, I pray that we would call to you when we're tempted, that we'd emulate your fight in temptation. I thank you that you have destroyed the one who has the power of death. These accusations, the, the fear of death. God, I, I pray that we would see death as not a destination, but a doorway that we can follow you through. Lord, I thank you for even giving us this passage in Hebrews to let us in on the window of why this is fitting. And I pray that we would follow you more closely. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.